Has anybody started their list of New Year's resolutions? One? Would you come forward and share yours this morning? <laughs> Man, what a bunch of slackers. Man. I haven't finished mine either. Every year I try to divide mine into three distinct categories. I have ones that deal with physical health. I may want to do a little more cardio or shed a few pounds. I have some that deal with relationships where I want to become more forgiving or I want to be a little bit more joyful as I relate to crazy children or something like that and then I have ones that are spiritual and these tend to be the ones that I need to work on the most they're always the ones that are the most clear to me but if you're like me and I suspect that a lot of you are I don't ever perfectly fulfill my list of resolutions in fact I I start with great enthusiasm and I'm excited about it and I, I spend time thinking like this is not only a goal Here's my plan for how I'm going to get there. And then I share it with someone, usually my wife, so that I have some accountability. And I get fired up and started until about January 10th. <laughs> and then it just kind of fades away. And I think, ah, I've got more important stuff going on. I'll try it again next year. Today is a perfect day for us to begin thinking about New Year's resolutions and about putting the past behind us as we remember the baptism of the Lord. And the baptism of Jesus begins with one of the more enigmatic figures in the New Testament, his cousin, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist's story, as you may remember, begins with really ancient parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were not able to have children all their life, and they were now up into their golden years, and they should have been living in assisted living. And God creates a miracle and they have this child, and he's an only child, and I can just see Zechariah taking him to the grocery store, to little lead practice, and people say, I think it's so wonderful when children, when children have the benefit of their great-grandparents in their life. And then Zechariah always had to explain that actually I'm his dad, and then his mom had to do the same kind of thing, and people were ashamed of themselves for the assumptions they'd made. He has this strange background, and he appears in the Scripture as this kind of first century Hebrew hillbilly. I mean, he lives out in the sticks. He's not in a neighborhood. He's not in a uh, development of any kind. He literally lives in the woods. It's like he's wandering around on Red Mountain. The scripture says he has long hair because he took an Old Testament Nazarite vow, like Samson, that he wouldn't cut his hair. And then he wore animal skins and a leather belt around his waist. He lived by just scavenging from the forest and the hills. He eats honey from beehives. He's got locusts in his teeth. 
I love this particular icon of John the Baptist. You can see that he's wearing animal fur and he has the leather belt around his waist. His hair seems like it's got little prickles and briars over it. And I particularly love this icon because he's holding his own head. You may remember that King Herod had him beheaded to to please uh, a a woman who who danced for him, and that was what she ordered. And so in this particular icon, he's beheaded, he's holding his own head, and he's carrying in his left hand the announcement that he makes in Matthew's Gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now you will be hard-pressed to find anywhere else in the Scriptures, or especially the New Testament, where somebody is as straightforward and fiery as John the Baptist. He absolutely leaves no holds barred. He doesn't have a filter. He's not trying to be your pastor and build trust in a friend. He is there to call you out, to help you realize just how wretched you are. And it begins in the story, it says, with people from Jerusalem, Judea, and the countryside. Just random groups of people. If you take what the details that Luke gives in his gospel, there are soldiers there, there are poor people there. But then Matthew says, then, after he's been baptizing and preaching, then the clergy show up. Now, first century clergy were a little bit different than people like me today. First century clergy person was not only the religious teacher, they were also kind of attorneys, because the only law they had was religious law. It was a theocracy of sorts. And so it was this combination of practicing law and teaching from the scriptures It was typically a profession that was reserved for the upper class, the better educated. Many of them came from families of notability and wealth. They were in the upper echelon. And their tendency was to look down the bridge of their nose at all those who were beneath them, to condescend. And John the Baptist absolutely blasts them. Now, in what Austin read for us, the first part and the last part, I reserved the middle three and a half verses. Hear this, John said to them, you children of snakes, who warned you to escape from angry judgment that is coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. Don't even think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. Can you imagine if you came into church this morning and I began my sermon with you brood of vipers? I'm, I've got a list I'm going to put on the screen. I know I've been watching you. I've been observing you. And I'm going to go down this bullet point list so that you all are embarrassed in front of a crowd of everything you're guilty of, everything you would be embarrassed about and ashamed of. I would be wagging my finger. My face would be red. My teeth would be clenched. I'd be pounding a Bible on the altar and you wouldn't come back to church anymore. And you get on social media and be like, what is with that preacher? That is the angriest dude I've ever seen in my life. Like I showed up at church. I was there for a message about Jesus' grace and love and forgiveness. And he totally just embarrassed me, just put my life on display. But yet the scriptures open with the story of Jesus' baptism with this figure, this outsider John the Baptist, coming to name everybody's sins for which they must repent. And if I'm being real honest with you, and I think if you are too, when, when somebody is that just rawfully honest, truthfully, brazenly, cold with just the way things are, 
we bristle at that. We get a little defensive at that. We certainly may be embarrassed by that. But on the inside, underneath the layers of condescension, after we get over being turned off by their behavior, most of the time we kind of have to admit there's some truth there. I didn't appreciate the way that John talked to me, but my goodness, I can't say that he's wrong. I mean, how many of us who in the last year haven't done something that we regret? It may not be a huge thing. It may just be saying something to our spouse or our children or a sibling in a moment of anger when our filter was down. And we spit out those words and they stung. And we could feel the distance in our proximity between us and it grow just a little bit. And we wished immediately we could take them back. Or maybe it was that second look that went from admiring someone's beauty to allowing our imagination to run wild with them. Maybe it's just something whispered that's really funny about a coworker or a neighbor, but inside, if we're being honest, we know that it undermines their dignity and we probably wouldn't want them to know that we said it. That's just the things that we do. What about all those things we failed to do? that make me fall short. There were times when I probably should have picked up the phone to call a family member or a loved one just to hear their voice, to ask them how they're doing, and to express care for them. There were times when I probably should have asked for forgiveness for something, but I was just a little bit too prideful, and I was not going to let them have the satisfaction of knowing I was admitting I was wrong. There were probably several situations where I should have cared more about someone else's hardship and it was just easier to turn a blind eye and remain indifferent. John the Baptist knows all of this. And when he's telling people to repent, to change, to start bearing good fruit instead of bad fruit, he's doing this based out of a long Jewish tradition. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. Now, those of you who have studied the Old Testament know that when you, as a Jew, wanted to go worship in the temple, you had to make sure not only that you had just kind of confessed everything you'd done wrong, that you were spiritually clean in your conscience, you actually had to ritually and ceremonially become clean. And so, in Leviticus chapter 11, 15, and 19, they talk about a Hebrew concept called mikvah, M-I-K-V-A-H, mikvah. It is a derivative of the Hebrew word for hope. And what it refers to is a ritual ceremonial bath that an Israelite would take after they had done anything to make them unclean. If it was a man and he had to clean up a, a, an animal carcass, if he were a shepherd, that made him ritually unclean, had to go down into the waters of the mikvah. If it was a woman who gave childbirth, she had to go through the waters of mikvah before she could experience the presence of God in the temple. This particular picture is from the ruins of the temple where Jesus would have worshipped in the first century. It was destroyed by the Romans about 30 years after Jesus was born. But there at the ruins of the temple, I've been there, you can see where they would have walked down the steps into the small pool, almost like a small hot tub or spa. There would have been large curtains around it. It would have been almost like a rented locker room. They would have been side by side several at a time so that when you went to church, in order to make yourself ceremonially clean, you would go down, in, pay a little fee, take the curtain back, step in, 
like you're changing clothes in a changing room. You'd get undressed, get washed in the mikvah, go back out, go to church, and then go home. It was required. Because the reality is that for most of us, not a week goes by when we haven't done something we wish we could take back or failed to do something that we wish we could go back and do. The mikvah water washes away the things that you regret and the things you need to repent of. Then why is Jesus doing this? That's the great question in the middle of this story to me. John is unabashedly blasting people for their brokenness. And then Jesus shows up and says, count me in for the same things you've counted them in for. You baptize me. John has a stutter step. It's not appropriate for me to baptize you. You should be the one baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, allow me to baptize you. This is so righteousness can be fulfilled. And so Jesus submits himself to the waters of baptism in the Jordan River. And this particular painting from the early 1500s by Joaquin Patanier, you see Jesus, and it's a culmination of several different Gospels rendering together of the event of Jesus' baptism. You see your eyes are drawn to the brightest point of light there in the center of the painting where Jesus in his pale European skin and his white towel there around his waist, your eyes are drawn to that central focal point. John is holding in his animal skin garb. He's holding likely a seashell, although it is not depicted in this particular painting, where he would scoop water from the Jordan and then pour it over Jesus, which was a reflection of the way that people were baptized more in the 1500s than it was in first century Palestine. You see over John's back left shoulder the crowds of people. And if you look carefully and closely, you can see soldiers, you can see religious leaders, and you can see ordinary common folk. Above Jesus, there in the blue, just to the left of the rock, you can see the small outline of a dove representing the descension of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. And you see the Father Almighty there splitting the clouds and speaking His words of approval and satisfaction and joy upon His Son. Why does Jesus, when John is baptizing for repentance, why does Jesus get in the water, and receive that baptism. Christian confession for 2,000 years has said that Jesus Christ was the only person who fully and perfectly fulfilled the will of God. He was sinless. And John's only reason for baptizing is to wash away mistakes. I can imagine Jesus on the earlier in this day, whatever morning or afternoon, him in the woodshop, taking off, his apron, folding it there, having heard the word that his cousin, his eccentric cousin, John the Baptist, is is baptizing people not far away down in the heated valley of the Jordan. And Jesus just feels that tug in his heart that his time has come. He will no longer just carve farm implements and make furniture for people. He will be on a mission to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And he makes his way down into the Jordan. I wonder if Jesus remembered the same similar journey of his ancestors, the children of Israel, after they had escaped from Egypt, having spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, would have headed west down through Moab, south of the Dead Sea, then back up north, paralleling the Jordan River, and come to the banks of the Jordan River and stood at its waters and looked across into Canaan land. 
the promised land of Israel, the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus would have remembered that as He approached the Jordan River. That His ancestors had received the promise of God on the other side of the water. And Jesus enters the waters to be baptized by John. There's got to be something at play here. There's got to be something to the mystery of why Jesus would submit Himself to a sinner's baptism when Jesus had never committed a sin. We're given a small clue as to the theological importance of this later on in Acts chapter 19. The Scripture tells us while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took a route through the interior and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you came to believe? And they replied, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, what baptism did you receive then? They answered, John's baptism. Paul explained, John was baptized with a baptism by which people showed they were changing their hearts and lives. It was a baptism that told people about the one who was coming after him. This is the one in whom they were to believe. This one is Jesus. After they listened to Paul, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in other languages and prophesying. Altogether, there were about 12 people. Here's the thing. If we were all just receiving when we are baptized as Christians the baptism of John, every one of us should get rebaptized every week, if not every day. Because that's the baptism just of repentance. I've done something else wrong, God, or ten. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Great. Slates washed clean, good to go. But what about the next day? Or three days later? Or the following week? The baptism of John is about repentance. The baptism of Jesus is about redemption. I want you to hear this difference. The baptism of John is taking the bad things out of us. The baptism of Jesus is about God putting God's new good things in us. That's why Jesus says my baptism is to fulfill all righteousness. Something that needs to yet happen. It's not that John's baptism is enough with just taking our sin away. That Jesus getting into that water puts something in that water. And it changes me. And it changes you. And like the children of Israel, it's not just standing on the shoreline moving into the promised land. It's moving into an entire new reality. A new identity. One that is marked not by our own failure and our own disobedience, but one marked by a desire to be obedient and God calling us beloved child. Jesus enters that water not for himself, but for me, for you. I remember just a few months ago when our family was bringing our final child home, Hannah. This was on our way home. We had stopped in Heathrow Airport for a plane change, and I'm wearing a Play-Doh mustache there. It was about the only way I could get her to interact with me at that point. Uh, she loved her mother, which was just wrong, and... Um, I remembered as we were sitting there that in my backpack, I, I, I wouldn't go anywhere without that backpack. I didn't go to the restroom without the backpack. I wouldn't go down to get a piece of, cup of coffee without my backpack because in that backpack was something very precious. The day before we left to bring her home, we made a trip to the American Embassy in Ethiopia and we stood there with the immigration and adoption counselor behind glass and she explained to us the different paperwork that she was putting in a packet. 
this packet. She said, I'm going to seal. I believe it was stamped. It had one of those strings you rip and tear it away. And she said, here's what's going to happen. You need to keep this with you at all times because this is what's going to allow your daughter to come into the United States. Don't, don't put it in your checked baggage. You need to take it in your carry-on. And don't open it because if it's unsealed, it won't be accepted. So I tucked it carefully in my backpack. I must have checked it three or four times on the plane ride from Ethiopia to London. I checked it again in the airport and on the plane ride from London to Chicago. And the agent in Ethiopia told us, when you get to customs and immigration in Chicago, you're going to, there's going to be a long line of people, and you'll see an agent there, and you need to approach them, get out of the line and approach them and say, we have a child that we've adopted. And they will say, okay, come with me. They will lead you to a desk, and there will be another official, and they will ask you for this packet. Hand them that packet, because that will allow your child to enter into that country, and that's the only way they can get in. And the moment that they open that packet and remove those papers, by virtue of your custody of your daughter, she will become a U.S. citizen. We made our way through the line in Chicago, and just like they had told us, we went to the small desk, waited our turn. We went up to the desk, I handed the packet. The guard opened it up, took the papers out, and I think just because they were familiar with this routine, I do remember her looking up at me and smiling and saying, welcome home to all of you. It was in that moment, that moment, that our daughter moved from a citizen in one kingdom to a citizen in another. And that process of assimilating into that new culture, those new relationships, is an ongoing one that continues to this day. But that was the moment. And that, to me, is a beautiful image of how the waters of the Jordan River change once Jesus steps in. Thank you, God, today for your son and his willingness to condescend to my level to enter the waters that should be reserved for a sinner like me and for changing the beauty of the mikvah, the power of water symbolizing the washing away of broken and dirty things. I pray today, God, that as all of us think about our own baptism, whether it is in our past or for some it may be in their future, that we would be humbled by the power of what you are mysteriously doing in us through the grace of the waters of baptism. I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord and God's people say,